Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. In a turbulent era, she staged a coup, turned her part of Europe around, and caused the mass settlement of the Americas, for better or for worse. She's responsible for the powerful chess piece we call the Queen, and a terrible era called the Spanish Inquisition. Never before have we covered a person whose influence has lasted longer and grown so exponentially. The end. Let's talk about Isabella of Castile. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1474, the Republic of Venice established the world's first patent system. In England, the Wars of the Roses were in a holding pattern as Yorkist Edward IV sat on the throne. Ivan the Great, grandfather of Ivan the Terrible, ruled as the Grand Prince of Moscow and was taking over territories of what would soon become Russia. Louis XI, also known as Louis the Prudent, was mid-reign as the King of France and had his fingers in the Burgundian Wars, which helped to formalize Switzerland as an independent country. 270 years after the death of Eleanor of Aquitaine, 43 years after the death of Joan of Arc, Henry IV, King of Castile and Lyon, died, and in 1474, his half-sister Isabella boldly claimed his crown as her own. Princess Isabel, spelled Y-S-A-B-E-L, of Castile, was born on April 22nd, 1451, in a town called Madrigal de las Altas Torres, the first of the two children of her mother, Isabella of Portugal, and the fifth of the six children of her father, Juan II, King of Castile and Leon. Papa had been married before to his cousin, Maria of Aragon, like you do when you're royalty, with whom he had had four children, but three of them had died before their third birthday. There was only one child left from his first marriage. That was a man at this point. He's 26 years old. His name is Enrique, and he is the heir to King Juan's throne. It's already established. 26 years older than his sister, Isabel, who we are going to call from now on, I hope you understand, Isabella, as that is how she is known to history. Papa, as a king, well, he liked the glittery parts of ruling, the parties, the pageantry, the lady persons. But what he valued most was the free time. <laughs> <laughs> he did surround himself with intellectuals. He liked literature and philosophy. But as far as actual kinging goes, he left all of that to his advisors. He hated the day-to-day -day responsibilities of being the king. That's why he left the reins in the hands of his chief advisor, a man named De Luna. Picture Jafar from Aladdin, <laughs> except a Jafar that's not so good at running things. Agrabah, is that the name of the Aladdin country? I think so, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's exactly who came to mind when I started reading about this guy. Yeah, And he wasn't born into nobility, but he had been with Juan since Juan was a boy and he was a very powerful man and he had been able to turn his fortunes around, not necessarily legitimately, you know, but gray areas of the law. He was a wealthy and powerful man and he did, as far as Juan was concerned, he did the job pretty well. 
Except for if you are a human that lives outside of the royal circle, the countryside is full of crime. Everyone is huddling in these fortresses, in these castles. Castile, maybe that's why it's called Castile. Like, you can see one from the other. Everyone is hiding. There is unrest throughout the land. Nobles are squabbling with each other with no referee. I mean, literally, armies are marching around, whacking at each other. The neighboring country of Aragon which were relatives, cousins, because we're all cousins when we're royalty, were <laughs> rubbing their hands together at the instability over in Castile and just waiting for their chance to pounce and take over. But as far as the king was concerned, as long as the wine flows and I can keep dancing, la la la, I cannot hear you, la 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 la, he was fine. Deluna possibly poisoned King Juan's first wife. Probably. Let's say probably. Yeah. yeah, she had started to point her finger at him and accuse him of things. And, and then she was dead, just like that. Hmm, I wonder what could have happened. He definitely engineered the king's second marriage because the king was all set to marry a princess of France. All about it. Super excited. But unfortunately, behind the king's back and with the king's seal, he had negotiated instead a Portuguese marriage for the king. What? Well, it's a done deal, sire. She's on her way. The king was so angry. And this reminds me of when Henry VIII was encouraged by his advisors to marry Anne of Cleves. Poor Anne of Cleves shows up to the angry, disenchanted Henry VIII. This same thing happened to Isabella's mama. This poor, innocent, 19-year-old Portuguese princess came to marry an unwilling man twice her age whose seriously unhealthy bromance was never going to make her life easy. King Juan showered his favorite Deluna with titles and property and honors that could have been spread out among the nobles to win friends and influence people. But this guy, Deluna, he placed it all in one basket. This Deluna was the richest and most powerful man in the kingdom when it should have been the king. I mean, mm -hmm. call me crazy. No, no, not at all. And he took his role even farther because King Juan and new Queen Isabella got along very well. And he decided that they were recreating too often and he wanted to curtail their activities and actually give them a schedule to be man and wife. Because the power of pillow talk was something he couldn't exactly barge in upon. So he wanted to limit that power that Mama had. Although, honestly, I don't think she had a lot of influence with her husband, not even when DeLuna threatened her life and said, I can put you back where you came from or, you know, in the ground like I did the last one. He was pretty open about it. Until Isabella's little brother Alfonso was born, until a son was born, a queen didn't have a lot of power. But once Alfonso was born, then somehow the pressures of everyone finally got through to the king. Or... Or perhaps Isabella and Enrique teamed up to get DeLuna out of the picture. I mean, he had certainly done it to enough people in the past. It was just payback as far as I'm concerned. So they may have coordinated an effort to have DeLuna throw a man out of a window and die in front of a huge audience. So the king couldn't overlook it. He had to do something and punish DeLuna. So in a fit of unexpected kingliness, he ordered DeLuna to be executed. You do not have to tell us twice. Ding dong, the wicked vizier is dead. It was moments before they were carrying that guy out of there and almost directly afterward, though. 
When it was too late, King Wan realized what he'd done. For one thing, this kingdom is not going to run itself, and now I'm committed to do a lot of the gross parts. For another, the Ottoman Empire had just taken Constantinople. Constantinople, for a thousand years, had been the bastion, the Christian city of antiquity, the holiest place, fell to the Turks and became Istanbul. You know the song. (laughs) What, you're not going to sing it? Istanbul was Constantinople. That's all I know. Um... (laughs) So basically, Europe is facing the possible extermination of Christianity. And the only guy that knows what to do is in pieces at the king's request. And nobody, not even all the king's men, could put him back together again. The king really started to spiral emotionally and physically. And within a year, he died from a broken heart or tuberculosis. Doesn't matter. He's dead. Isabella, his daughter, was only three. The king is dead. Long live King Enrique. In a lot of places, you'll see it as Henry IV. But Enrique is so much better for this story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then Mama fell apart a little bit. She'd go into these fugue states where she'd stare at nothing for hours at a time, shriek in the night that she was being haunted by the ghost of King Juan. And I'd be more worried about the ghost of King Enrique, to be honest. He wanted his stepmother, who was only three years younger than he was, to stay at court with his half-siblings so he could keep an eye on them, keep them close. And Mama is like, no, 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 no. Everyone here has his own questionable favorite, including you, King Enrique, and I'm all done with that intrigue. I'm all done living like this. And she took her two children to live as far away within the country as she could reasonably get. I mean, she wasn't on the moon. She wasn't in the middle of a forest or unreachable, but she was no longer within the orbit of the court. No, Enrique did send soldiers out to keep an eye on them. They lived a very quiet life within a small walled-in village. Now, a lot of reports will say that they lived in poverty and squalor, Mm, not so much, but they didn't live in the, the luxuries that court would have provided. But it wasn't bad. I mean, it wasn't a castle that they lived in, big Disney stand but it was a two-story mansion, let's call it that. And they did have a small court, but it was a very quiet, a very religious life. The king was getting married again. His first wife of 13 years had just been sent back to her country for non-consummation of marriage. So obviously he had no heirs except his two half-siblings. And you can tell how much he loved that idea by the fact that he disregarded the generous provisions his father had left for those children, Isabella and her brother, in his will. And King Enrique just gave their inheritances. It was the right to receive taxes from different cities. He gave that to several of his boyfriends just to curry favor with them. They had no cushion, these two children, and and did without in royal terms, you know. Mm, yeah. A- ask any peasant, though, who was better off. I mean, oh. place the back of my hand on my forehead. <laughs> you can only afford a seven-course meal? Oh, how do you manage? So until his new wife had a child, Isabella and Alfonso were necessary evils, unfortunately. They were useful, though, in certain ways. When she was only six years old, Brother King Enrique betrothed both of his siblings to children of those troublesome cousins over in Aragon to calm the waters. I was going to sing, we are family, (laughs) but it's more like cementing the alliances. Doesn't quite roll off the tongue as much, but it wasn't really family feeling. It was more like crime prevention. So princesses know 
that it's their destiny to leave home one day to marry a foreign prince. Okay. Who's this? Sounds good. Ferdinand. Mrs. Ferdinand. Writing in her little notebook. Maybe <laughs> she put a heart over the eye. Just kidding. He was about her age and not the oldest son, but everyone said he was charming and handsome and he's five years old. So we can just stop right now. <laughs> talking about how awesome he is. Everybody's awesome at five. And obviously, no one's going to live together for a long time. So proceed with life, Mrs. Ferdinand. <laughs> but that life was good. You know, she was educated far more so than a lot of girls her age. Isabella was taught to read and write etiquette with supreme importance. History, that's often the history of her own family, really. When you're born into royalty, she learned French. She learned Italian. She was already speaking Portuguese because her Portuguese grandmother had come to live with Mama and her grandchildren at the little village. She studied music and dancing and embroidery and sewing. She learned how to hunt. She learned how to ride horses. She was an expert horsewoman. It was a very simple life and it was very devout. Queen Isabella kind of ran a very tight religious ship. She had had, perhaps it was uh, episodes of postpartum depression, but whatever it was, she had used her faith to kind of bring her up out of that. And so she raised her children in a very devout household. Their faith was of utmost importance. To dispel confusion, the Isabella that Susan just referred to is actually Mama. Um, there are many Isabellas. Oh, this story, more than any other, has duplications of names. Yes. So in England, we're Mary, Mary Elizabeth, Jane, and here we're Isabella Juana um, <laughs> over and over. So just be prepared for that. We will try to give them um, nicknames to make things a little easier. Well, Princess Isabella's favorite story, her favorite heroine of literature was Joan of Arc, whose reputation was actually beginning to change after her death into less heretic burned at the stake for wearing men's clothes and being crazy, which was how she went out, kind of, um, PR-wise, into glorious warrior for the faith, martyr for God. Do you remember? We talked about this in our episode about Joan of Arc. It took a couple of decades for her to receive a official innocence, you know. But by the time Isabella was a child, a book called La Poncella de Francia, which had a happier ending than the real story, i.e. <laughs> Joan lives, Joan rides into the sunset. Um, it really caught at her heart. In, in the way Laura Ingalls Wilder did for so many of us, uh -huh. Joan of Arc was Isabella's Anne of Green Gables. Mm -hmm. And she didn't really predate her by all that much. You know, we think of Joan of Arc as being a long time ago. But in Isabella's day, she was only dead 20 years before Isabella was born. So almost a contemporary. Well, and it was both the adventure of Joan's story and the religious element that appealed to her. She was brought up to be extraordinarily devout by her mother. There's not a lot of free thinkers in medieval Europe, I will tell you. <laughs> Still, the household of Mama was unusually serious in that regard. And something Isabella learned from Joan's story is that the world is out to tear down the forces of good. And it is up to the warriors for God to defend the church. And unfortunately, this lays the foundation for some very unsavory parts of our story later. Do you agree? Oh, yes. But right now, it's a good thing. It's giving her a moral compass. It's giving her a role model to try and live her life like... 
except for the end part, but she didn't know that part. <laughs> she yeah. thought she was riding off into the sunset. So at this point, it's a good thing, I think. When Isabella was 10, she got the news from King Enrique. You know what? Forget that fiance Ferdinand from before, the one that's your age. His older brother, Carlos, will be your new husband. Carlos, who is 40. <laughs> He's the actual heir at this point to the throne of Aragon. That's a much better match. And we're going to be happier for that alliance. Carlos's papa and Enrique were having a bit of a spat. But that all kind of trickles down to Isabella. Okay, Mrs. Carlos, is it? Okay, not ideal. But what can she do? Girls don't get a say. Girls don't get a say at all. And Enrique, without warning... Enrique's men showed up at Isabella's mama's castle and took her children out of her custody by force. They were brought to court, those innocent country-raised children, and tossed into basically Las Vegas, the worst parts of Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, they went from a bucolic existence kind of into a more party atmosphere, a more uh, rom... Uh, what's the word I want to use that's nice? <laughs> There's a lot of sexiness going on. In court, a lot of flirting. Think of that scene in Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, you know, where the girls were all partying. It was like that. So, um, <laughs> the big difference from quiet life, let's sit centers around church activities and riding horses to the middle of a party with champagne flowing everywhere. Well, King Enrique had a whole court full of boyfriends battling for supremacy on one side, and then little Isabella became a lady-in-waiting to Queen Juana, whose court, I imagine, is what Catherine Howard's would have been like <laughs> if she hadn't been afraid of her husband's wrath. Let's just say the ladies were... Free of body and spirit. Generous oh. was the term they used around the court at the time. They were generous with their favors. Not a secret. This is an open scenario. Some courts are just like that. I think the fashions change with the temperament of the people in them. But Isabella took refuge in the church, a familiar place in this very strange environment that gave her comfort. And it grounded her and it maybe reminded her of her mother. It was so scary to her after all the careful, nurturing care of her governess who had gone with them to the country. Her mother, who was a very loving and involved mother, her grandmother, who had come all the way from Portugal to be with her. She later wrote that during this time, keep in mind, she She's 10 and 11 and 12. She feared for her virtue every day and her life every night. She got very good at putting a court face on, at hiding her feelings, at hiding her fear. You might feel it, but you only tell God. You trust no one. So why did Enrique bring the kids back? Well, his wife, Juana, was pregnant. Unlike the first marriage that didn't result in any children, probably not because of his wife, it was because of Enrique. His second marriage did result in a child. Now, whether that child was Enrique's or not, is it going to be a question that we ask for the rest of the story? Court Chitty Chitty Chat had another father in mind, one Beltran de la Cueva. The baby was born. It was a baby girl. Thumbs down, says everyone. Baby Juana became known as Juana de la Beltranella. That is Juana... <laughs> of Mr. Beltron, really. <laughs> I mean, dudes swore loyalty to this baby as the heir to the throne of Castile and then immediately went home and wrote out dated disclaimers and put them in a safe place. Pretty much no one thought this was the king's child, kind of, you know? Yeah. The asterisks were obvious, is what I'm saying from the beginning, though I will say in the interest of fairness that modern historians still do not necessarily agree on whether or not Juana was Enrique's daughter. 
in the interest of fairness, I just have to say that's out there. No one knows. But in the era of the lack of DNA testing, circumstantially, it didn't look good at all. (laughs) Something else that didn't look good, Carlos... The 40-year-old new fiancé had been disinherited by his father over in Aragon in favor of his little brother Ferdinand. Carlos, the heir, had been imprisoned by his own father. Popular demand rose up. There were demonstrations. Bring back Carlos. Bring back Carlos. He was a favorite of the people. And then suddenly mysteriously, he died, poisoned, some said, by Ferdinand's mama, the second wife, so that her own son would be the heir. These families, what is so luscious about power? Who would be a king? Not me. I wouldn't. Like, what's the problem with a house in the country and unlimited money? (laughs) Stay away. I don't want any power. (laughs) Well, at 12, Isabella was promised, again, to King Edward IV of England. Well, unbeknownst to his own negotiators in this matter, King Edward had secretly married Elizabeth Woodville, who we've already talked about in another episode, and he was unavailable all of a sudden. (laughs) Oh, ixnay the alliance with England. Things could have turned out so differently. She's so young, and she's been betrothed three times now. Mm-hmm. That was um, discarded fiancé number three. Well, there was a revolt among some high-powered noblemen against the ineffectual reign of King Enrique. They staged a coup in effigy, kind of. They made a figure that was obviously King Enrique, life-size, put him on a throne, had a crown on his head, and then used their boots to kick that guy right off the throne, kicking him right in the booty, and then taking its crown off the ground and putting it on the head of Alfonso, Isabella's younger brother. Enrique did pull a sort of weak king-like move at this point. He said, fine, fine, fine. I will recognize Alfonso as my heir, but he will be promised to my daughter, Juana, in marriage. Fortunately, or perhaps fortunately, unfortunately for him, fortunately for everybody else, he got kind of got caught up in the details of that, what with them being uncle and niece <laughs> and so young. So that whole plan kind of petered out. Well, and Enrique started to run out of money and he started to run out of steam and up steps one of his nefarious advisors who said, you know, I can give you all the money you need to defeat this upstart. All I require is that you marry your sister Isabella to my brother. This old clergyman of low rank who was notorious for his hedonistic lifestyle. Oh, the parties he had. (laughs) You thought this court was Las Vegas. I don't even know where I'm going to tell you this guy lived. Not good. (laughs) So, you know, the guy's like, you can stop this right now. You can have all the money I've got and I'll talk to those guys. I can get them all on your side again. And weak Enrique without spine is like, okay, okay, whatever you say, you know, that's good. Okay, Isabella is to marry your brother. And so here is this Jabba the Hutt, like slobbering (laughs) fiance setting off on horseback, so eager to get a hold of his 12-year-old new promised wife. And he's hustling his hiney down the road. And I was just horrified. She was about to be thrown away like trash, like absolute trash. And she spent two days on her knees praying to be spared. Kill him, please, God. Kill him or kill me. I can't take it. I can't marry him. You know, her best friend, Beatrice, Mm -hmm. offered, you know, if God does not do it, I'll hide behind the door and stab him. I don't care. (laughs) So you always want to have a friend like that. (laughs) That's right. Some friends will just listen to you. Others will bring the knife. (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, he died on the road. Beatrice did not have to become a murderess. <laughs> it's an answered prayer. Okay, technically, she probably shouldn't have been praying for death for somebody, but the outcome was good. It was in her favor. That's really not how it works in the church, but it worked this time. Well, so how does it work? You're supposed to ask, you're supposed to pray for God's will and for you to accept God's will, whatever that might be, even though it's not necessarily your number one choice. You have to pray to accept that God is in control of your life and he's going to make it to his advantage to him and to his kingdom. He's going to do that anyway, I'm guessing. It helps regardless you. of your input. <laughs> okay, well, it will also help you accept whatever that is. Except for if you wish Jabba the Hutt would die on the road and he dies <laughs> on the road. And then you learn to pray for death. Yeah. Well, there you go. It all worked out. This is a short version. It all worked out. Sticky version of religion right there. He died of a throat infection, which I was like, whatever. And I Googled it. And sure enough, like two weeks ago, a woman in modern day England just nearly died of a very similar infection, even with all the medical attention available to her. So I stand corrected. I was fixing to scoff at this. I'm like, he got stabbed. Nope. <laughs> he got stabbed in the throat. <laughs> No. By God. <laughs> That's right. So her brothers both had armies. They both called themselves the King of Castile. They were both gathering supporters. And Isabella had to pick sides. And she chose to throw her lot in with Alfonso, the slightly younger brother that she'd actually grown up with. There were ups and downs. Sometimes Alfonso was in control. Sometimes Enrique was in control. People seem to think that Alfonso was a stronger ruler than Enrique, even though he was just an adolescent. He, if he was high school age, I'd be surprised. I think he was upper middle school age. Well, wouldn't it be safe to say that his advisors were better rulers than Enrique was? That is true. Also, perhaps that Alfonso was not as malleable. I guess that's what people say, that Alfonso kind of knew his mind and could interact with his advisors in a responsible way. People mm -hmm. really remarked on him being so different than his brother. Right. Well, the period in which Isabella was the first lady of her brother's court was short, but it was glorious. It was until one morning, Alfonso was found unresponsive at the age of 14, and he had been fine at dinner last night. Now, what are we all thinking? Poison. Again. Isabella, who had defied King Enrique in the most open and bridge-burning way, Rutro. <laughs> she was also now, as Queen Elizabeth I had put it when she was in this position, quote, the second person. Everybody's hope for the future and the target for the present. A whole set of nobles who had formerly been on the side of her brother Alfonso were urging her to declare herself the queen. And wouldn't that be tempting? Having tasted the liquor of power, it had its good points. But was she secure enough to keep waging war on Enrique? Were there enough rebellious nobles that had a steel spine that would put their money where their mouth is and not abandon her? So instead, Isabella turned to diplomacy and compromise. And she and Enrique sat down and had some conversations that, that culminated in a spectacular ceremony in front of four granite bull statues. I mean, if you want some symbolism, there you go. 
and they signed an agreement. They could end the war that was going on between the factions. I think King Enrique was simply relieved to be able to save face. That's what I would say. So Isabella said, okay, parlay. And he's like, ooh, kings, kings negotiate. Kings do that. Okay. That is an option available to kings, I hear. Okay, we'll do that. So Isabella said as her part that she would go to the nobles that had opposed him and and say, none of us should betray King Enrique. I appreciate your support. And what I ask is for all of you to recognize me as the heir, the future queen, and I will help my brother to govern better than he has done. Whoa, spicy, kind of bold. But he took the deal. He publicly admitted that his daughter, Juana, was not his. He declared her illegitimate, old Juana Beltranea. He also promised never to force Isabella to marry against her will. In return, she promised loyalty and not to marry without his permission. Seems fair. It seems fair, but of course, they both started reneging on their promises. I mean, almost on the way home. Get this. Enrique made a crafty plan to marry Isabella to the king of Portugal. So that sounds like a good thing, except for he already had a grown son who was his heir. So any children Isabella had with the king of Portugal would just be also Rand's, would be nobody's. But oh ho, he was going to marry his daughter Juana Beltranea to the king's grown-up son, the heir to the throne. Ha ha! So she was going to be the king of Portugal and Isabella would be a nobody. Which is actually a very kingly decision. I mean, it was very political for him to decide that. Of course, she saw right through it <laughs> and set about quietly looking for her own marriage. She knew old boy was going to pull that from the beginning. She had been making her own plans. The boy she'd married on the playground at six, Ferdinand of Aragon, was now the king of Sicily. And he was now the heir of Aragon due to all those poisonings, and Valencia, and Catalonia. And also he was her age. Her allies arranged a proxy marriage, which had the force of law. We've seen that. I think Marie Antoinette had a proxy marriage and was able to travel with her new status. Mm -hmm. So it did have the force of law, but it was kept on the DL. Very, very brave of her to do this. Because she can't be at the whim of her unstable brother, you know, but her best friend thought this whole thing was a mistake and Beatrice outed her, like sent messages to King Enrique. Do you know what your sister's doing? You should come see what's happening. So Isabella had to evade capture from Enrique's minions. This part of the story would make a great movie. Isabella's moving around. Enrique's spies were on her. There's the betrayal of the best friend, who she forgives, by the way, later. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Um, the powerful official fiancé, the king of Portugal. The handsome true love that she'd never even met. Disguising himself as a peasant and sneaking across the border. There's a lot of drama. There's a lot of opportunities for scary moments and people jumping out from places. I say <laughs> Somebody should make a movie. And there's a steamy part. It was a political marriage advantageous to both of them. But when they saw each other, there were sparks. They had to fan themselves. It was certainly not necessary to find each other attractive. But what a nice surprise all this electricity is. Hmm. <laughs> now, Isabella did tell her brother Enrique, not ask, told him about her marriage beforehand, but not far enough beforehand on purpose because he didn't have time to act on this info. A week later, they were married in person in borrowed clothing because they both had no money. <laughs> They did have a big party, you know, with trumpets and drums and the airing of the literal dirty laundry from their wedding bed. Uh, but it was a full-on wedding. What a flag to fly. What a flag to fly. Uh, you know, everyone cheered when they saw it. So hooray. So drink up. King Enrique blanked them. 
He did not forgive them. He wouldn't answer their messages. He wouldn't accept their messengers in the door. He inflamed passions against them to the point where people of high rank all over Europe began to not want to be seen with them. No bueno. To make things a little bit more complicated, 17-year-old Fernand had been man about towning it to the point where he already had two, as they say, natural children. That's a Jane Austen uh, euphemism there. And he kept being a man about town. I don't know how to say that more plainly. He did not cease. Right after the honeymoon, he went back to his old ways. And oh, turns out their marriage may not be real. Because they were second cousins, they needed papal dispensation to get married. The Pope at the time was Team Enrique and wasn't about to give it. So somebody managed to come up with papal dispensation that was signed by a Pope who had died a few years beforehand. It was like a cut and paste. <laughs> It was something they downloaded off the internet and filled in their own names and then printed it. No, no, no. So now Isabel is pregnant in a marriage that is not legal. It was very troublesome. Well, oh, all we can do is go on and hope for the best and hope for the future. And this was a woman who needed a son to legitimize her position, to legitimize her claim to the throne. Unfortunately, for the moment, the baby was a girl who she named, say it with me, Isabella. Isabella. And I do not believe that he would have done this had baby Isabella been a boy. But King Enrique lost no time in stripping his sister of her titles and her lands and getting Juana Beltranea, his own illegitimate daughter, back in line for the succession. Ferdinand left the country for two years to help his father fight a war with France, accompanied by his mistress, the mother of his two older kids, fetchingly attired in men's clothing that fooled no one. <laughs> Honestly, during the next few years, he left children here and there like the King of the May. So he not only betrayed Isabella, he betrayed his mistress too. It was an all-skate betrayal. And he did not, however, leave children where it would have done some good with his wife, Isabella. And the next few years for her were challenging, to put it very, very lightly. She had no money and just a very few close friends and supporters. But rather than wallow or hide or cry or give up, maybe she cried. I don't know. I would have cried. <laughs> <laughs> At least in private. Um, she played the long game. She started to cut deals and made friends in secret at the highest levels all over Europe, promising when she became queen, uh, land concessions, titles, support for their wars, whatever she had in her arsenal, quietly weaving the spider web that she was going to be able to use. Most helpfully, perhaps, she made friends with the right-hand man of the newest pope. Believe it or not, we've got through a few just in the couple of years that have passed since the previous pope wouldn't sign the dispensation. And now this man, the right-hand man of the current pope, was a fellow Spaniard named Rodrigo Borgia. So there's a name. Surely, if you know anything about the Borgias, you know that in Rodrigo, you are not looking at a guy who follows the rules. I think he is classic Slytherin, but oh, yeah. he's wired for success at any cost. Wait, would you think Isabella would be Ravenclaw? Nope. No? What house do you put her in? She's Gryffindor. Oh, Gryffindor. Okay, I see. Uh, I'm just saying, fight me, but she's Gryffindor. <laughs> I'm... I Am I going to fight you on a Harry Potter issue? No, I just think, uh, here's why I say that. Let me back it up a little bit. I think Isabella, she does plan, but she also takes these leaps that a really thinking person would actually like, mm, there's so much evidence against this course of action that I think oh. I won't do it. Whereas she's just like, you know what? Jump in. And so anyway, that's what I think. 
So she made friends with this Rodrigo and really owed him a lot. He used his influence to make her marriage legal at last, get the correct official papal dispensation from the current one, and legitimize her daughter, Isabella. That's a powerful favor for Rodrigo to have in his pocket from a future monarch. You know what I mean? From Rodrigo's Mm -hmm. perspective, this wasn't costing him anything. Castile was falling apart due to King Enrique being an ineffectual mess. And in some other parts of Spain, it was a crime punishable by death to praise Ferdinand's father, who was their king. So if you said good things about the king, the leaders of your village could kill you. So this new generation might just be the ones to back because the older generation was not handling things properly at all. Along with all the crime and unrest on the entire Iberian Peninsula, which was kind of what we're going to call all the little principalities and kingdoms. So forgive us if we sometimes just say Spain. Technically, it's not Spain for a little while. We're missing a major piece in the South. But in the interest of clarity, just so you know what we're talking about, Spain equals Iberian Peninsula equals Spain plus Portugal, you know, etc. So (laughs) we did not get together on our notes beforehand. So forgive us. We're all talking about basically the same area. So uh, along with all the crime and unrest throughout whichever entity you choose to call this place, religious wars are breaking out between Christians and these Jews who had converted to Christianity. Most of Spain's Jews had been forced to convert during the cheerfully named Massacre of 1391. And as you can probably guess, these battlefield conversions sometimes did not stick in people's hearts. And I can't really blame them. These people were known as conversos. Also, the march of the Muslim Turks continued from the south and all was chaos, all was fear. Isabella saw certain doom for her country if she did not step it up and Isabella decided to begin operations. Her best friend Beatrice had married someone very close to Enrique in his cabinet and I don't know, honestly, I think history has never said if she went specifically as a spy in the House of Love, you know, or... Did she have much say in the matter, though? Would she had any say in who she married, Beatrice? Well, I just don't know. It turned out to be a love match in the end, so I... I think it all worked out, but here's Beatrice kind of in the enemy's camp, and she felt free to pull the king aside in a room and say, look, you, you, <laughs> you need to make up with your sister because this does not look good, and you need to ensure that this country sees you planning for the future because everyone is losing their minds out there. And so Enrique agreed to meet with his sister, and after four years of no seas, they met together. Ferdinand hung back because just in case this was a trap. He didn't want to get involved. But ultimately, (laughs) the good relationship made Ferdinand, okay, this isn't a trap. I'm going to come. They all hung out and they all had dinner. After one meal, Enrique doubled over in pain, horrible pain. And everyone pointed to our classic suspicion of poison. Both of Ferdinand's siblings had died of poisoning. So the rumor went. So it's a reasonable assumption that everyone might make. Let's just say he's going to die. They did ask him as he's laying there on his deathbed, sir, who is your successor? And he never gave an answer. And so he died at only 49 of despair. Of poison, of tuberculosis, (laughs) whatever he died of, he's gone. And Isabella wasted no time in proclaiming his death and going into official mourning, followed 
so the story goes, immediately by a glorious self-coronation. She and the event planners had been behind the scenes in this for months. It was masterful PR. If it happened right afterward or if it was just marketed to have happened right afterward. Yeah, Isabella had uh, court chroniclers on her side and also on her side was the fact that the printing press had recently come to Spain. So she was able to use the press to kind of mold her public image more than any other ruler had been able to in Spain before. So yeah, the story of her in mourning dress one day and then marching up in royal regalia the next day is probably a little off as far as timeline is concerned. However, the underlying principle, assume the rule. People will follow your lead if you have no doubts or if you show no doubt. It seemed to work. However, it's a historical mystery. Was Isabella's seizure of power here a coup? She had just displaced the last legitimate heir on paper who had not actually been legitimate at all. Very complicated. Um, poor <laughs> Juana Beltranea was um, hmm, blowing in the wind. But so people are trying to decide if it was really a coup. And I think I'm going to have to decide that it was. I because see coup. the last known official heir was Juana Beltranea. Mm -hmm. I see coup. Uh, yeah, I don't even have to debate it. I mean, I could see why there was a lot of problems, you know, a lot of questions, but that's definitely a coup. But, you know, you you dress for the job you want. You act like the job you want. People will believe that that's your job. You dress in cloth of gold. People think you're a queen. That's right. So Isabella has declared herself the Queen of Castile, and many people are happy about this, though a significant number of them are not. Chiefly, Mr. Isabella, who was not informed in time that Enrique had died or what Isabella's plans were. She did send a messenger, but it was more like, walk slowly, make sure to stop and have a drink from time to time, see the sights, heel to toe that situation down the street, like, don't hurry. <laughs> And Ferdinand, he was so mad. He thought if anyone should have been crowned, it was him. He is the nearest living male relative to the king that had just died. And by the time he got to the city of Segovia, where she was, she'd been ruling for two weeks by herself. Yeah, which is probably why she did it in the first place. Mm -hmm. If she had had the man on her arm, it would have been seen as you know, he was going to rule and she was going to stand by his side. But that's not the case. When he got there, he tried to assert his male prerogative to rule. And Isabella was not about to cede power. And they had that little spat. You're the consort. I'm the ruler. No, I'm the ruler. You're the consort. A woman is always the consort. Au contraire. Mom Frere, Castile had had ruling queens in the past, number one. Number two, you signed a document in that prenup we made that you would be the prince consort and never ever the king. Always read before you sign, even if you're in a hurry. <laughs> That's what I have to say. Even if it's dark and you're running from Enrique's spies, you have time to read something that's going to direct the rest of your life. So he did sign it. He was humiliated. He was so 
angry and he was about to flounce out, but she can't just say talk to the hand via con Dios because she has to have more children. She doesn't have a son for one, and she needs, needs, needs the fiction of a united front, if not the real thing. There was a big series of negotiations between the two groups of advisors. And it was agreed that Isabella would have the actual power in Castile. Castile was hers. Her word was law. The end. But Ferdinand could have his name on her proclamations and on her documents, even on the coins. In fact, you know what, Ferdinand, says Isabella, you can put your name first. Is that okay? (laughs) You can be the boss on the coins. (laughs) There was a new motto, Monta, Tanto, Tanto, Monta. As one is, so is the other. I think that was a good um, way to work this out. Yeah, she goes down in history as the second person for Nan and Isabella. But at the time, you know, she knew she was going to be in control. I think it was a good compromise, except for that fact that you did say... We all know them as Ferdinand and Isabella. And even Mm -hmm. if it's just Isabella, there's Ferdinand in front acting like the boss. And maybe that was useful because people did like to deal with a man. I mean, I'm sorry that still happens. I am too. But (laughs) if anybody in this world knows the power of being underestimated, it's you. (laughs) Beckett Graham. (laughs) Oh, that's true. Well, you know, from Isabella's perspective, as long as she wielded actual power, Mm -hmm. Um, he could be the public face of it for all she cared. It, it was the only way that she could get him to sometimes stick around. And sometimes you just have to patch things up. So, okay, one man down, but then another man rises up, starting complicating matters again, just like a horrible seesaw. Remember King Alfonso of Portugal, the fiance that has now been jilted? Well, his marriage contract with Isabella had flat outstated that if the marriage with Isabella didn't go through, he was authorized to invade Castile. That's how serious Enrique was that this marriage was going to go through. Like, if this doesn't happen, then you can do this. Oh, well, he did invade Castile with 10,000 men, and he married King Enrique's daughter, Juana Beltranea. Who was 12 at the time. His actual blood niece also. Oh, yeah. Gross. Super gross. But you know what? He had read the paperwork and those things were in his contract. And so whatever, he executed that and war began for the control of Castile. Ferdinand and Isabella on one side, the entirety of Portugal on the other side, on Juana Beltranea's side. Nominally, no one cared about her, really. She was just a pawn and I felt really bad. But um, so it's Portugal v. the rest of the Iberian Peninsula. And so this whole war was in the foreground for a year. And then after Ferdinand and Isabella won a pretty public and decisive battle, not the least of which was in the public eye and in the hearts of the country. Like they might have squeaked it, but as far as the PR went, they were triumphant and everybody's heads are on pikes and blah, blah, blah. You know, the marketing Mm. really worked on that too. Also, they had taken, they'd gone to the mattresses a little bit in Portugal. So the Portuguese kind of had to fight on their own territory, which helped a lot because the people of Castile didn't see a lot of the battles. So that's going in the background for a little while. Now that the critical year of battle was over, she could focus on some other things. Isabella looked around and she's like, what? can I do next? What's my next project? All she saw was a bunch of squabbling kids, all these kingdoms just fighting and bickering, all this nobility who had power that they didn't know how to wield properly. So she decided it was her job to bring some law and order 
to her country. One of the first things she did was put together a police force that would help keep that law and order. They are called La Santa Hermandad. That was my one year of Spanish in college. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they were more militia than, you know, jovial cop on the corner. But at this time and in this place, that's exactly what she needed. It's a strong force, almost militaristic in her corner. And they reported directly to the government. They weren't independent fellas. 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 <laughs> fellas makes them seem like they've got their thumbs hooked in their suspenders and they're clog dancing. <laughs> But they weren't. Spoiler alert. They were not. They were cracking heads. They were hauling people in for offenses, much to the surprise of the offenders. Like, wait, we've been doing this for 20 years. Nobody said anything. Oh, how times have changed. Yeah. There was a lot of cleaning up. Yeah. She also looked at all the rules and laws all over the land and consolidated them as well. So there was one set of laws for everybody. None of this little kingdom stuff. And instead of putting those nobles in charge of it, she brought in counselors who were college educated. They may not have been born into money, but they had the education behind them that could help them make wise decisions on her behalf. Harkening back again to Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, did you see how people had the honor to hold the gloves and that had come mm -hmm. down to them as a matter of nobility? Well, similar functions happened in government. We didn't get a whole bunch of that in that movie. Um, sometimes people were counselors for foreign affairs that had no interest or knowledge of foreign affairs. It's just that that position had come down to them through their forefathers and wave your fingers in the air. There were people to deal with that, surely. <laughs> it's not me. And so Isabella said, you know what? You're right. There are people to deal with that. And I'm going to give them the official title. Here's what I'll offer to you, Mr. Nobility. If you still feel like you want to be involved, by all means, I'll get you a chair and you can sit in the room. But you are not going to have any say anymore in what happens in this department because there's people that actually work that I need to get this country back on track. And she was firm. I'm sure she put it more diplomatically with a lot of more <laughs> <laughs> my brothers and these and thous and in the interest of and blah, blah, blah. But functionally, she was saying, shut your face and leave me alone because I need to get stuff done. Take a seat somewhere else. Yeah. Another thing that she put under royal control was the mint. Money was being made at 150 different mints scattered throughout the country. She closed all but five of them, consolidated the operations, and put them all under the control of the government. So now she's in control of what money is being made, what money is going out, what money is coming in. She's got control over all of it. She also instituted a system of judges herself being the first among them that could administer the punishments, many harsh ones that were coming due after all of these crimes had been committed. Finally, there were going to be consequences for people's actions. She was working also toward cleaning out corruption in the church, which is an uphill battle. And also your best friends with Mr. Borgia. <laughs> who is kind of the poster child for corruption in the church, just so you know. But I guess when people serve your ends, you kind of have to put up with the snake in the grass for a while. So she's not reforming him. Um, but in her local churches, she is. So basically, she is work, 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 work. That is something people have not seen in their ruler for decades. Not only is she working hard, she's very interested in hearing about things. She's very interested in having her finger in all the pies. And it could be unnerving, actually, if you're used to not being micromanaged to have this very alert ruler kind of on top of you. 
Well, and she was also being seen, something that her brother and her father didn't do very often. She was going out in the country and meeting people, you know, not so much like shaking hands and stuff, more right. like <laughs> giving speeches from a stage way higher than they are. But they were able to see their queen. People were able to say, oh, that's the woman that's in charge of my country. She had been doing this since the day she put the crown on her head, just getting out there and meeting the people. I think it was reassuring to know that there was someone in charge at last. That's why even though those judges handed down awful harsh punishments, the cause of justice is being served at last. Maybe it goes along with that upbringing where you have to have rules so children can flourish, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Ferdinand, speaking of children, mostly stayed away. Their coronation agreement kind of had a little loophole. When Isabella wasn't with him, when he was by himself, he could be an agent of the queen and could use his better judgment to make decisions. So, of course, he's going to try to not be around the queen so that he can have full power to make his own judgment. He was taking pains to be busy elsewhere or... Maybe Isabella purposely wanted him gone because I did read a letter in which she kind of says, I'd love to be involved, but you're keeping me at arm's length. I keep telling you I can come back and you say, oh, no, wait, I have something else for you to do elsewhere. So I actually think it was more, let me get my feet under me before you come back and start bodging things up. Exactly. And that image, getting back to the image that she was presenting, she had to present herself as the queen solo and without him around. Yeah. And it worked out well for both of them. One visit home at last bore fruit or maybe <laughs> Isabella bore fruit. She uh, at 27, Isabella finally had a son and heir, little Prince Juan, the blonde future of both Aragon and Castile. The country went wild. There were barrels of wine on the street corners. There were three days and nights of let the wild rumpus begin, beating of drums. <laughs> Everyone's voice was gone by the end and had to take to their bed with a headache because there was no Advil. <laughs> I hope they drank not water either. You can't drink water. <gasps> what are you going to do? I guess you have to drink beer so. to get over your hangover. <laughs> That's really troublesome. Well, also, there was the rattling of sabers. Their neighbor to the south, the Muslim ruler of Granada, said he would no longer honor the tribute his predecessors had paid to Castile to keep the peace. I am going to turn all those coins I would have paid you into weapons to attack Christians. Also, congratulations on having a son. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, since well, I had you on the phone. <laughs> yeah. The ruler of Granada, Abul al-Hassan Ali, was a problem, but not the most pressing one for Isabella as far as her purposes go. For the moment, she made him think he'd intimidated her. He'd won. You know, she signed a peace treaty with him. You big, strong man. I'm just a little lady. I don't know anything, which... I can't believe worked, but okay. He backed down for now. He thought, I resisted the oppressor, and now I don't have to pay these taxes. Little did he know, he had just allowed the storm against him to gather some strength. But we will let him live in his blissful ignorance for now. <laughs> Not too long after the birth of one, Isabella had a second daughter. This one named Juana. Juana. <laughs> Let's just say she was named after her grandfather because King Juan, Ferdinand's father, had died, making Ferdinand finally king of Aragon. And Valencia 
and Catalonia. <laughs> he's already the king of Sicily. That's right. He's a lot of kings all in a row. So, so I just want to backtrack. She is doing all of this stuff while pregnant twice. They finally signed a peace deal with Portugal. King Alfonso over in Portugal signing a deal, which ended up giving Portugal valuable sea trade in North Africa and um, several other territories. But... It ensured peace on the land for everyone except for Juana Beltranea. Poor Juana. She was still a teenager. And she, at that is to say, her advisors were given two choices by Isabella. One, she could have her marriage to King Alfonso annulled and be used as, again, a pawn in a political game. Or she could go live in a convent for the rest of her life as a nun. Which door did she pick? The door that I would pick. And honestly, I know it was a total come down and it was really a... Um, Robbing her of her birthright, I guess, but it might just be better. Oh, it's got to be quieter. Nobody's after you. You can just spend your time in contemplation and being in the garden and this and that, and it might be a relief. We don't know. Although she did sign herself the queen for the rest of her life, the whole world had moved on without her. So I don't think she was ever really reconciled to her displacement. So for everyone but Juana, the peace between (laughs) Portugal and Spain is awesome, which is good because there's another terrifying and infamous scenario that Isabella set in motion this year. A little thing that we like to call, we don't like to call it, actually, we just call it the Spanish Inquisition, also called the Holy Office, which is better PR. (laughs) It had been an established practice in the church already to send inquisitors out into the field when there was claims of heresy, to investigate everything, to come to a decision whether this person was indeed a heretic or not, and then turning them over to secular authorities for punishment, that is to say, to kill them. So the Pope was kind of on board for this because it's something that we've already done, something we've had going for years. So sure, Let's keep doing it. And when Ferdinand, ooh, Susan, when Isabella and Ferdinand went to him and said, look, we would like to take control of this inquisition here in our territory. Um, you, you don't have to send your guys. We'll take care of it all. We'll put some friars in charge of it. It'll all be very religious. Nothing's going to change from your previous inquisitions. So basically failing to conform to Isabella's religious and political status quo equals treason. And their first focus was on, quote, conversos. If you remember, I I talked about them before. These are Christians who had either been Jewish and then converted or were descended from formerly Jewish people. These conversos were suspected of secretly, never having become Christian at all for real. They were really holding Jewish ceremonies in the night in their house, and they were outed by bigoted neighbors for heresy. The penalty for heresy was death after extensive torture to gain a confession. Something ugly had been unleashed on the Iberian Peninsula. There was fear of the other. There was the temptation for neighbors and village leaders and the government of seizure of valuable property for people that were denounced. There's the fact that anonymous tips can let you take revenge on your neighbors for petty grievances. And it started with the conversos. If you were still Jewish, 
this isn't about you, at least not at the beginning. But as the Spanish Inquisition kept going and no one protected the conversos, it spread to Jews, to gay people, to Protestants, to Muslims, to people who were divorced, to enemies of the government, to free thinkers, to anyone who didn't tow the absolutely regular line, they were suspect. And the Inquisition as an institution in Spain lasted for three centuries. And we might laugh at Monty Python's, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition, <laughs> or Mel Brooks, the Inquisition, the Inquisition. Right. Oh, it's all fun and games unless you were there. But obviously, it, you know, there's not a bit of humor about it if you're living during Isabella's reign. I mean, during her lifetime, historians have differing opinions on how many people this affected, but between one to 2,000 people were burned at the stake for heresy during the initial wave of Inquisition. And many, many more were tortured almost to the point of death or dispossessed of everything they owned. So there are many parts of governing that Ferdinand found tiresome, but oh no, the Inquisition, he was all about it. Here is a description of Ferdinand. A lot of people think he is the real, I don't know how to say it, architect of how the Inquisition was run. Here's a description of Ferdinand. Instead of openly defying morality, he sought to employ it for his own ends. He knew how to evaluate mass feelings as a factor in social life and used the force of popular passions as steam to move his ship of state. He harnessed the hatred of the conversos to advance his political interests, but all the while he tried to appear as Holy Mother Church's true son. What is that from? Uh, it is from... A historian named Ben Zion Netanyahu, who has his own issues and biases, for sure, if you were to look into his background. But he is a noted scholar, very specifically, on the lives of Jews during the Spanish Inquisition. And I think he wrote a book that's like 1,500 pages long that I did not check out for light reading. Aha! Uh -huh. So Ferdinand and Isabella, I have to say, almost created... The hysteria about the conversos. Uh -huh. They weren't bothering anybody. I mean, like maybe one or two people. But as a group, they did not deserve what came their way. People would come begging to Isabella for relief because Ferdinand was seen as the harsher one. And she would say, of course, it's not me doing this to you. It's God's will. He put this into the heart of the king. His will be done. She... I can't even believe this, considered this a success. So many converts saved from certain, you know, hellfire. Even the Pope at one point is like, whoa, whoa, girl, this is going too far. And she admitted, I know I've decimated whole villages. 10,000 innocent people have suffered, but it's all for the greater good. I know. And another benefit that she saw was that at last she had unified the country against a suspicious other. The outsiders are gone. Long live us. Oh, this is where my opinion of her changed. Up till here, I was like, you go, girl. You're doing it all. You are my queen. And then this happened and I couldn't get myself back on her side. You know, usually we're on the side of our subjects. We can see it from their side and empathize with them. But I am having a real hard time with her. I can't put it any other way. There is just a disconnect here between... Uh, something happened. Like somebody fell off of something and hit their head. There is just a giant disconnect here between human behavior 
mm-hmm. and some kind of monster. I just don't know what's happening. I know it's the fervor of, you know, she feels like she's a warrior for the church. Right. To just spread so much destruction and fear and and how she had kind of led with firmness, but kindness before. Mm-hmm. To, to have this just unleashed upon her people, I just don't understand it. And I will say that he, even though she does do some good things <laughs> in part two. Um, <laughs> which are good depending on which side you're looking at him. Yes, let's call them good slash bad things. Oh, you know what? There is an involvement in the game of chess that is categorically good. We can okay. go there. But All other right. than that, I there is a mixed bag coming up. And, and unfortunately, this Spanish Inquisition has really colored the way that I perceive her for the rest of her life, too. So stay tuned for part two, uplifting, <laughs> as this one ends and the next one begins. Um, we are going to leave her in the midst of basically metaphorically flinging her whip about kind of randomly at her people. And so I can only say in a tone of voice I don't normally use, thanks for listening. Bye. (laughs) If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcatcher you prefer. I don't know if you've heard about this, but I do believe we are going on a History Chicks official field trip to London in June of 2020. Do you want to be involved? Well, go to the website www.likemindstravel.com and sign up to receive notifications when we get our specifics. It'll be very exciting. There's a lot planned so far, and I think it's only going to get cooler. So do watch this space or go to that website for updates. The guitar solo in the middle was performed by Minstrel Spirit. It's called Dream of Spain. And the end song is by the Chambord Vihuela Quartet and is called La Vita Fugue. And it's technically in Italian, but arranged by a Spaniard. So I thought it was okay. It kind of evokes the feeling that Susan and I had at the end of this episode. Kind of by the time we were done, we were all kind of like wrung out. (laughs) And so um, that voice really seemed to get me. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next time for part two.